Hello, my name is Raj Mehta, and welcome to Richard Lehman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Uh, I'm fine, thanks, Raj. Uh, looking forward to talking about the future of medicine instead of going on about the past. Um, but the future looks uh, bright and complicated, and uh, I'd be glad if you could start off by saying what we're going to talk about. Today, we're going to be discussing AI in medicine. I think specifically AI in the context of how we approach EBM, how physicians practice, and the ways in which AI might help transform us to be better clinicians and better practitioners of uh, evidence-based medicine. Okay, so um, what we've done over a, a number of episodes is talk about the ways that uh, evidence-based medicine has improved the practice of medicine, but is also extremely complex and fraught with difficulties that have built into the way it works. One of these is the entire dependence on what randomized trials there happen to be out there. Another is the size of the human brain and the way that it can process information. And the, com the <clears throat> collision of the two means that clinicians often have difficulty in uh, grabbing the piece of evidence that they need to make a decision with the patient in front of them, let alone explaining that decision to them. And we've been through shared decision-making and guidelines and the various ways in which perhaps we could train clinicians to do this better and also train them how to do clinical decision-making uh, more rationally. But all the time, there's a feeling in the back of our minds that this is all a little bit idealistic compared with what is actually going on in the hectic world of our health systems, which in their various ways are tending to disintegrate and become full of burnt out individuals struggling just to do the everyday work that they have to do. And then along comes the cavalry. Um, and the cavalry has come many, many times in the form of um, artificial intelligence, which is supposed to replace the real human intelligence that we're talking about. And up till now, it's been um, largely lacking and even disastrous in some contexts. Um, we remember the IBM um, pilot and various other things which were supposed to be able to handle complex information but couldn't. Now along comes uh, chat GPT and all of a sudden we seem to have a form of large language modeling which can actually communicate in human terms and process a lot of information although it's far from perfect, uh, it sometimes generates its own information, <laughs> false information. But I think, well, in my mind, things are changing very rapidly in front of us at the moment. And um, I think this sets new challenges for the entire way that we structure our thinking about diagnosis and about teaching medicine and about communicating with patients. So I'm hoping that we can explore some of these aspects in the next half hour. Yes, it's a very exciting topic. And a large part of this is the fact that the technology has advanced to the point where 
it's no longer a question of hype or false promises. There are actual visible deliverables, and there are things we can see now that it can do that are quite impressive and that have a lot of potential applications. So I think a good starting point for this is, I think for me, touching a little bit about some of the big challenges that we have in EBM and information mastery. And I lo- there's a formula that Alan Shaughnessy has made, has published, I think, 20 or so years ago. And it was about the usefulness of information. And he postulated that the usefulness of information is equal to how relevant the information is times how valid it is, but inversely proportional to how much work it takes to get it. And I think this is true for a lot of us in the point of care. If we have to do a lot of search, if I have to open a textbook to find the relevant information or guidelines, it's a lot of work and I may not have the time to do it to make that information useful. Or if I have a cell phone and I can access Google or up to date, perhaps I could search that information and get it quickly. So the internet has made this process much better than going to a library and textbook, but still there are a lot of barriers there and I may not get the exact information I want. And certainly it's going to be in a lot of medical jargon and I have to kind of filter to, through a lot of text to find the piece of information I want and still requiring a lot of work there. And what AI potentially can do here for us is it just, again, another massive drastic drop in the work it takes for us to get the information that's useful because in theory I can ask just chat GPT, what are the recommendations for how I treat this? Or how do I explain how to do this kind of a diet to a patient or things like that? And if it's relevant and valid, which is, we'll come back to that, um, that can be a very, very helpful assistant. So there's a huge helpfulness that's there. And that extends not just to factual information, but also in terms of diagnosis, because I can information in such as signs and symptoms and ask it to give me a differential then maybe things i'm thinking of that can help kind of spell that out a little bit and maybe include something that i might have forgotten if i had not looked up on a list and so on so that's really the great potential there for what it's doing and how it can be applied now whereas two five years ago we didn't really have a tool that could do something like that yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're, we're full of uh, positive developments this year so far in these chats, and um, some of these have, have come from our guests last week, um, James McCormack and uh, Julian Treadwell's GP Evidence. Um, these newly summarize uh, the effect sizes that matter most to patients and the order in which we might think about them for treating common diseases. Um, and that's one example that um, could more or less be transferred straight over to an AI tool. Um, but what we're also seeing is AI starting to do things that are truly spooky, making up um, Shakespeare sonnets and um, <laughs> uh, doing its own thing with you know, choosing which evidence it wants and so on. And I mean, this is all fantastic stuff, but um, it does take us into the realm of science fiction almost. It's like Hal in the film 2001, you know, the, the computer that's smarter than the guy it's playing with. Um, and um, the Turing test before that um, asks you whether whether it, it is distinguishable from human consciousness. And we're beginning to move into the territory where perhaps it isn't so much. And instead, we're going to use AI as a human kind of humanoid consciousness that's better at stuff than we are, uh, but that we can contest and that we can 
uh, try and explain to those around us, particularly the patients we're treating, you know, just because the AI system says do this, uh, that doesn't mean that we have to do it. And the AI system might hear us and say, oh, yes, you do because of this and that. Um, and I mean, that's that's pretty good stuff. It's more it's a bit more interesting than trying out trying to fill out a billing form or a, 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 some crazy diagnostic coding system that was invented 20 years ago. So yes. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to this. Um, anyway, uh, that's taking us slightly into science fiction. Well, um, I, I think it's a useful point because as exciting as this is and as hopeful as we can get, it's worth delineating what's kind of the science fiction and unrealistic expectations from the ones that are practical and can be. So, I, for example, I don't think chat GPT or AI is in a position where it's going to be replacing physicians or primary care physicians anytime soon. But some people have made those claims um, and it may be worth just explaining slightly why we don't think that's something to be concerned about, why this is, from my perspective, more something that will hopefully be a huge age to make us better at what we do and more efficient uh, rather yeah. than a total replacement. Well, I, that's very much been my line ever since AI came into use as a, an abbreviation, I, I would say it's assistive intelligence, not artificial intelligence. It's only useful in, in as far as it assists our uh, process of dialogue, both with, with ourselves and with our patients and with our colleagues. And all three are very important because um, our inner reflection uh, will be questioned in circumstances which suddenly arise in front of us. And, and so we plump for an answer. We uh, make a decision and that, that in, often involves professional preparation, um, not always informed by prior experience or evidence. We just have to make it there and there. And if AI can help us make the right ones, um, then that's fantastic. But um, to come back to your point about good examples before we get on to the disadvantages, what, what would you say are good examples of the current use of AI? So there's there's... I was reading a textbook and I was reading a couple of different references here and I have to uh, give a shout out. Eric Topol has written a book on AI in medicine and which he published a couple of years ago, which kind of gives a nice outline. And then there's a more recent one that was written by um, actually a Microsoft engineer of ChatGPT and that was by, uh, I'm getting the name here, I apologize. Anyway, I'll put it in the links. So I just left saying he's scared about what's happening. No, not him. This is this is by Peter Lee and co-author. So he's at Microsoft. Okay, right, and he, okay. he has one specifically about chat GPT and healthcare. But so there are a couple of good uses and there's a couple ways of categorizing them. So one is how it can be an assistant for a physician. And so this is kind of exciting in the sense that I as a doctor, I, you know, I have to write notes in every patient I see. And potentially an AI assistant could, let's say it was listening to a conversation I had with a patient in an appropriate and you know secure way, and it could transcribe the entire conversation, and then it could take that transcription and auto-generate a note for me. And then I could review that note, make some additions to it or edits, and then put it in the chart, and that's my completed note. That would be incredibly valuable. I can't tell you how much time in the US we spend just writing notes and documenting information, and to have a tool that could help auto-generate notes would be a fantastic 
Now, similarly, if I could have a voice system where I could just tell, oh, could you add orders for a CBC, a BMP, and X-ray, and have those items auto set up in my EHR so that I could one-click sign them, there's a lot of potential workflows here where having an integrated AI could just be a very useful assistant and make things easier. Um, so that's a very potential exciting, uh, simple operational step that could be there. Yeah, those simple operational things are long overdue. Um, it's crazy that we still operate uh, famously with fax machines and bits of paper and coding that's done by uh, doctors, not always perfectly because they do it uh, as a last minute thing. Um, and and self-replicating mistakes in patient notes, which patients can't weed out. Thing, basic things like this. Um, are going to take years and years and years to sort out unless somebody um, reorders re re the, the entire system. And as, as America doesn't have a system, that's going to be difficult. Uh, I think it can possibly happen in um, the NHS, but even that is going to be very difficult. Um, and um, fortunately, there's an extremely uh, bright um, young team working on that. Um, the other thing is that um, in terms of EBM, um, JAMA's published some interesting papers recently about AI, but an interesting paper that's not about AI is about how um, long it takes to change medical practice. And the, um, the mean appears to be 17 years. <laughs> and that is in the era of guidelines and EBM. Well, you know, <laughs> is that success? <laughs> is that what the, the pioneers of EBM wanted it to look like? I don't think so. Um, maybe AI can help with that too. Yes. So there's a couple more things that can be very helpful here. The one that's really interesting is this process of diagnosis, because we've had episodes where we've discussed this and the human and cognitive component of diagnosis and how complex it is and how EBM has attempts to help us make better diagnosis by giving us transparent information that we can use to make more clear the process of what we're thinking to explain to others and to ourselves. But the reality of this cognitive task that we're doing is that it's still mostly in our minds and you know, information available to us can only help so much in improving it. With an AI assistant, it's you have something for the first time that could actually truly be a cognitive assistant because to have a tool where I could put in a constellation of symptoms and signs and ask it to help me walk through creating a differential or things I might not have thought of is is just really incredibly powerful. I mean, you know, this fact that it's done so in a style that seems conversational, but that can bring up relevant points and relevant bits of questions I might need to ask to fine tune what I'm thinking or things I might not have considered that are less likely or new illnesses or diseases I may not necessarily be aware of. That's incredible. I, I don't think we've had anything that can really do that in the real time. And it's not necessarily going to be for every patient, but the fact that you even have that uh, it, it can be really, really empowering diagnostically and also potentially even as a way to help make us better diagnosticians. Because like, what do we, what tools do we have right now to assess how good physicians are at diagnosing issues and improving upon it? It's procedural skills, we have a lot of things we've worked on to make us better at procedures and assess the quality and training and improve it. But the, the, the cognitive skills have kind of floundered, perhaps we haven't had something to do that. And now there's a potential that we may be able to do things the way our procedural colleagues do to to better standardize and improve our skill set. 
I think that's a fantastic point, and it's one that was occurring to me a lot today when I was thinking about this. Um, and we all hate the idea that we can miss important things, and yet very few doctors reach the end of their career without some regrets over a patient um, that they failed to spot in time um, or a condition that they failed to spot in time. So I think um, that's that's absolutely right. And um, uh, we we hesitate in a way to learn as general practitioners after a while. Um, and that's the most dangerous state to get into where we think we can sort of do it by experience because our experience is is a very skewed sample of what actually happens um, and it, it can as you say um, lead us to omit certain kinds of differential diagnosis through forgetfulness or pure ignorance and AI can can correct that very easily in, in a in an intimate way that doesn't involve us going through any kind of shame process right. Um, Yes. It, can, it can contest us in the privacy of our own rooms. Um, so I'm, I think that's a fantastic thing. And of course, this opens up. Uh, well, it opens up two things. First of all, it's potential for medical education for the apprentice stages uh, from a clinical student through a trainee doctor to, uh, as I say, to us as established practitioners. So at every point, it can help in that. The other thing with diagnosis is that we work with crude diagnostic categories, which are generally laid down by specialist societies according to the definitions that they want, um, whereas these don't necessarily um, uh, correspond to the conditions that we see in primary care. And I think probably chronic obstructive airways disease is one such example. Clearly, um, multifactorial and um, could be broken down into many different kinds. And all we can do about it is treat with the same kinds of inhalers for everybody with very minimal effects on hospitalization and um, practically no effect on prognosis. So um, I'm hoping that AI will actually help to demolish the status of the expert in deciding what what is what. Um, it's going to be a better classifier, uh, a better ontologist of disease. It's going to tell us um, which clusters really do mean stuff. Um, it's going to be better at that than, uh, than any existing epidemiological tool, I think. Um, but that's perhaps going a little bit far at this stage. Yes, I, I want to I want to be optimistic but balanced. I, you know, understanding a little bit of behind how these AI systems work, I'm not sure I can say confidently that we're going to be better at creating disease taxonomies with AI more so than we would any standard statistical tool because the same limitations of the underlying data and our measurements and so on exist. But I do think AI can help us be better and more consistent at using taxonomies uh, and improve a lot of our inter-rater reliability between these things so that we have less discrepancies and we're more mindful of these things. Uh, and I do think a lot of times, especially in primary care, there are so many classifications of taxonomy, we just don't dive into it. We just use generalizations because it can seem overwhelming or not relevant. But perhaps with a more of a cognitive assistant 
device like this, we can we can take a little bit of time or with less effort kind of clarify those distinctions uh, and that might be helpful in the long run. Yeah, no, I think that's a very thoughtful reply. And I was perhaps being a little bit uh, broad brush there. And, and uh, because I get so fed up with the, uh, the the very sort of blunderbuss treatments that we give to people, having put a particularly label on them, they they then all, all get the same stuff and we never know who benefits. And um, there, yeah. Um, but, um, and, and I'm sure that AI will come up with some better answers than human uh, statisticians um, working with larger data sets. And um, that's another thing well, we need to well, make sure know, it does. And, and this is a good transition because one of the things that I didn't think about, but that I've now seen as a great potential benefit of AI is that it's it's an amazing translator. It's really great at taking complex topics and then retranslating it in lay person's language and common language, which is actually not just helpful between specialists and generalists, but it's so helpful toward patients and explaining to patients, educating them. You know, we talk about shared decision-making all the time. And one of the challenges is that the medical jargon is so complex and how do I, you know, synthesize like years of my education, understanding a topic in a few sentences to explain to somebody. And I, I'm no William Shakespeare. But the AIs do it really, really well, and they do it really fast. And I can put in there something like, here's an abnormal lab result, explain in common terms what this means, and the AI gives a really nice response. I mean, it can do so empathetically sometimes if we wanted to ask it to do so. So there's a lot of opportunity here on the patient side for them to engage more with this kind of universal translator that kind of explains things to them better or that we can use to kind of navigate patients through understanding some of these complex things um, and kind of discussing it because language is its strength here. You know, using language and recreating it in ways that's meaningful is, is one of the things that makes AI so great. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm still reeling from that paper which um, showed that patients find AI explanations more empathetic than uh, doctors, uh, I forget in what context, but that was one of the JAMA papers I was yes. referring to. Um, and um, it, it's, you know, we, this reflects reality, doesn't it? It takes us a long time to develop our own repertoire of what we think are nice explanations for patients. And they're never tested, really. I mean, we, we use them yeah. in the privacy yeah. of the consulting room. Uh, and there are many books that tell uh, that um, suggest ways to break bad news or to uh, to explain a particular diagnosis or whatever. But um, if if they can be um, sort of not just standardized but also tailored for patients, um, I mean, in a in an ideal AI system, the um, the AI would pick up the uh, the vocabulary type of the patient, uh, mm -hmm. if we allowed it to do so. Uh, and then according to that um, sampling process over a 10 minute period or whatever, it would try and reply in words that the patient had already used or um, a, a vocabulary set that it or had already been trained in, um, that it recognized in a way that uh, was particularly good for, let's say, um, an ethnic minority patient with a certain kind of 
um, educational background that it would recognize through through that patient's vocabulary. Um, and that's something we can't we can't all be um, all things to all men. We 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 are better with some patients than others at explaining yes. what's going on. And that's what patients often choose amongst their doctors. They, you know, um, she's nice, she talks in a way I can understand, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, now, I, it's a bit spooky that a machine can do that. Perhaps, <laughs> than, you know, but if it can, bring it on. It, and and, and, the, and the idea here is it's a, it's a great cognitive aid, right? Because it's a mm. lot for us. We're like processing all this information and the patient's like, explain this to me. And now I'm transitioning from me, like my diagnostician, me kind of thinking through the treatments like, okay, let me explain in the moment, how am I going to explain this to you and pick up on what's there? And if I, if the AI system can kind of give me a starting transcript of like, this is how the AI would do it. I can just start reading from that and I can use it as my playbook and then I can adopt it and edit it. And that's huge because, as you point out, we don't really have them. We kind of just create them by trial and error through our own experiences. And now we have a tool that can maybe be really helpful there. Yeah. So um, lots of positives here. Um, there are big worries, though, in a yes. lot of um, yes. this is This is very much like um, some George Orwell type nightmare where the state could have complete control. <laughs> the state might not even be a person, it might be a system. Um, and it, they'll will then have access to everything, uh, including the words in our heads if we allow it, because there was that <laughs> extraordinary paper there. <laughs> I, so the I, I'm not quite worried about Big Brother yet. That, yeah. that, that may be one of the future. I think the, the biggest concern we have with the things like ChatGPT and the future AI models that hopefully can attain that same level of 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 validity and reliability and reproducibility um, is just is the validity of the information that ChatGPT gives us because it is a language learning model and ChatGPT, especially ChatGPT four, is really excellent because it's done so well, but it's not perfect and it still needs to be error checked. So people have shown examples of this online, but if I give chat GPT math problems, once in a while, it'll have a weird hiccup and it'll give the wrong answer. It'll accidentally say, you know, five is bigger than two when it's not. And so if I'm using chat GPT, let's say, to work me through insulin dosing in a patient, you know, I have this many vials of insulin, I want to give this much a day, how much should I do? Chat GPT will actually help explain that out and will give you a sense of how much you need to give, which is really great and useful. But you have to double check the math because once in a while it could be wrong, right? Or if I ask ChatGPT, oh, what are the recommendations for how to have a FODMAP dive? It'll probably give me a really good example, but I need to read and double check it because there's a chance it might just be a little bit wrong. And overall, the reliability is high, so that's why we can be confident of using this. But because there are still errors in this and it's not a perfect system, we have to be careful, you know. And I, I think this is also true for medicine in general. If I have a chart in front of me, electronic chart, and someone's written some information, some lab or problem, medication the patient's taking, you never just take for granted that everything that chart is perfectly right. You always have to verify the patient in front of you. Are you still taking this medicine? Is this diagnosis correct, et cetera? And I think using these technologies, as powerful as they are, we still have to be aware of these limitations. And we have to just make sure we're verifying everything that's there as we read it. And if we're reading something we don't know about, um, it's important that we go back and make sure we're educated too. We're not just blindly following it. 
Yeah, this um, this is known as um, the problem of the learned intermediary in uh, in this field. And uh, learned intermediary exists in U.S. law um, to describe the role of the lawyer, uh, the attorney, explaining. Uh, to the client what the law actually means in this area. And um, <clears throat> so the attorney in that role is supposed to know the law um, and to be able to explain it. Now, if an AI system comes up with an answer that is actually not knowable by normal means because it's derived from complex um, uh, algorithmic processes that are beyond uh, our um, knowledge or, or scrutiny, then the doctor can no longer be a trusted intermediary because all we're doing is agreeing with the machine. Um, and this is one of the deep problems that uh, some friends of mine, uh, actually with a law background, are trying to solve. Um, and the another problem um, is how you audit the ethical stances which are implied in in these decisions you know the um the machine cares nothing for the patient whereas you hopefully do um and so it may come up with answers which are rational but um unethical so um these these are some of the deeper philo philosophical issues which i'm just trying to get my head around because I'm talking to people who are much brighter than I am and much better informed on this. Uh, and their names are, are Sylvie Delacroix, who's um, done a lot of work on, on data protection. And um, another one is Jessica Morley, who's a, a youngster working in Oxford, soon at Yale. Um, and she is absolutely brilliant on, on looking at this in medicine and, and at the whole range of the problem. Um, so there are good minds on this, but it, it does raise the question of how these minds are going to actually influence the systems which are developing so fast um, and to some extent so autonomously within the machine. So um, I don't have anything to say <laughs> about that. Um, but I do know that a lot of the thinking that I was obsessed with up till well just a few weeks ago and is now beginning to, to seem terribly old-fashioned um, that we ought to be training students in particular for a world of medicine that's not going to depend on their knowledge of basic science so much as their knowledge of how to use um, AI and um, to convey these decisions and uh, scrutinize these decisions responsibly on behalf of patients. It's, it is going to be an interesting wild frontier. One of the practical things I think about is, you know, how comfortable should we be at learning how to put these prompts, the correct questions in to the AI system to kind of get results that help us? And how does that actually integrate into like an actual clinical visit if I'm sitting with a patient? You know, do I just tell the patient, oh, I'm going to just consult here with the AI and see what they say about this topic and then read from that and read it to the patient. It's it's going to be a very uh, interesting transition when these tools come online, how we start using them, how patients feel about us using them, and, you know, if it does actually make us more efficient or not. So, 
Yeah, I think it's going to make us better informed. It must make us more efficient because at the moment we're all burning out. We can't get much worse. It also has to revolutionise medical education and the ways into medicine. And there's a big debate about apprenticeship for medicine in the UK, which is taking place on a very poor intellectual level. But I think in the end, there are going to be multiple routes into forms of medical interaction and practice um, that we can scarcely conceive of at the moment. So we've had a, a good, wide-ranging, uh, pretty broad brush talk about this. And I think that's probably um, where we might um, finish at, uh, at this point. But um, I do hope that at some stage we can get a, um, a very informed guest along to um, to chat over some of these issues in more depth. Um, any any particular take home points for you, uh, Raj? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it'd be worth exploring this more. I'm really excited to see the context of how this practically integrates into the use by physicians, hopefully as a system to make us more efficient and as a source of information for our patients. I'm really excited to see how this might help improve education, uh, existing physicians, future physicians, because this is something transformative potentially in how we can approach and improve our diagnostic skills and our reasoning skills. And so that's really exciting. And then, you know, fundamentally, I think this hopefully might even assure a different way for us to approach EBM, just as the internet allows us to access information more easily and readily and transformed and really helped spur the EBM movement in the 90s. Um, if AI can again create another giant leap in reducing the work it takes to get relevant information at the point of care, um, there may be a new transformation at how we can improve the quality and standardization of, of the information we have available to us that we apply to the patients. Yes, and um, the, I agree with all of that. And um, I, I'm turning from a cynical old man into a, a young visionary again, thinking about <laughs> all these things that I'm afraid you, you will have the hard work to do uh, making it all happen. So thank you, Raj. Um, thank you, Richard. Bye. Bye. Bye.